Hello and welcome to Of The People. I'm Robert Chernin. Thank you so much for joining us again. The art of oppression is today's topic, not depression. Most of you out there are probably depressed, but we're talking about oppression. On a serious note, the Hamas war is in its third month. The wave of anti-Semitism in this country and around the world continues. It's wrong, it's unacceptable, but it's there and needs to be dealt with. But what I'm struck by most is the moments of cognitive dissonance that you are seeing in the liberal Jewish community in this country who can't really wrap their head around why there is all this anti-Semitism coming out of social justice movements, Black Lives Matter, uh, the, the uh, Palestinian uh, support uh, that's uh, in this country, those things. And these are, you have to remember that the liberal Jewish community, let's call it the reform community, has really been at the forefront of this social justice movement. What they don't understand is that this is really all about oppression versus an oppressor or the oppressed. And in this case, Israel and Jews in particular are considered to be the oppressors. And this is really seen through the worldview of colonialism brought on by Barack Obama, right? So everything you see is about who is oppressed and who's doing the oppressing. And in this case, right, men are oppressing women, white people are oppressing black people, rich people are oppressing poor people, right? Jews are oppressing Palestinians, right? That's what this is about. That is the connected dots or that's what ties all of this together. So when I find, and again, it would be comical if it wasn't so deadly serious. Again, cognitive dissonance is the only word I can use. They just can't wrap their heads around, but hey, we were supporting social justice and hey, we were supporting all of these things. How come everything's turned against us? And what they didn't realize is that they were supporting the very movements that were always anti-Semitic, that were always about oppressed versus oppressor. And if you go back, really, you have to understand where all this oppression oppressed versus oppressor comes from, right? Karl Marx, and I know as soon as you bring up communism, people start rolling their eyes and going, oh no, here he goes again. But you've got to know where something comes from, right? Karl Marx talked about the oppression of the working class or the oppression of the proletariat, right? By who? By management. That is the root of all of this. Now it's not just that the workers are being oppressed by management. It's like, again, blacks are being oppressed by whites, uh, rich or poor are being oppressed by rich people, women are being oppressed by men. And it's even into the syntax, in, into the language and all this, the nation state is oppressing anyone who's not of the nation. That's why they needed to get rid of the nation state. It's the whole concept of colonialism, right? The US was a colonial power. They were oppressing other nations. England was a colonial power. They were oppressing other nations. France was a colonial power. They were oppressing other nations. So the common theme to all of this is oppression right the art of oppression and how you define it right and now they're defining all sorts of other terms which by the way as i go to my dictionary they're even redefining what the word oppression is so if you go to miriam webster notice i didn't use funkin wagnall as i used to if you go to miriam webster's dictionary it now defines oppression as sadness which means they can't even agree on what the word oppression really means but we both and we all know better as to what it means that's why you're seeing the rise of Orban in Hungary. That's why you're seeing the rise of Malay in Argentina. That's why you're seeing the rise of uh, Maloney in, in uh, Italy. That's Brexit, that's Bolsonaro, that's Trump, right? Because people are fighting back against this whole nonsense of 
that everyone is oppressed and that everything has to be seen through those lenses. So I think the tide is starting to turn. God, I hope so. Just remember, we're all oppressed, so much so that I'm depressed. How about you? Folks, also don't forget we're having our giveaway, which is the Sig Sauer Academy $250 gift certificate. Good for Christmas stockings. Go to Robert at coalition, the number four, america.com. Say it's for the drawing. Give us your email address. Give us your, give us your phone number. And that's it. You're in the drawing. Stay tuned. We'll be back for another segment in the show right after this. Hi, I'm Robert Chernin. And I'm Erica Reddick. And we are Of The People. Join us on WUVR 1490 on your AM dial. That's Thursdays, 9 AM. Saturdays, 3 p.m. and WNTK 99.7 FM. And if you can't find out of those, you can find us on Rumble. That's right. Listen in. Hello. Welcome back to Of The People. I'm Robert Turner with my lovely co-host. Erica Reddick. Yes, you are. Erica, did you know that we're at war? I think we're at war with like six or ten No, 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 no. So we're at war. So President Biden just declared the Defense Production Act of 1950. Do you know what we're war against? We're war against Mm -hmm. gas and energy. He just, so, you know, in all the wars that are going on, right? Let's add another war to the program. Right. So I'm telling you, maybe you got to listen. President Biden <laughs> slipped it in right be, between between the war between Ukraine and Russia and, and the then, and war between Israel and Hamas or Israel and Iran. Right. right. There's, there's another yep, war going okay. on. It's the war on energy. Right. So you mean his war on energy. Well, I didn't say. Well, right? I mean, you know, it is one country, at least last time I checked. Right. But it's called okay. so there's something okay. called the Defense okay. Production Act of 1950, where you can commandeer right. resources in times of national emergency, right? There's that whole national emergency right. thing again. So yes. So the war now is on gas appliances and like gas stoves, and they just are investing without congressional approval using the Defense Production Act of 1950. They, I think it's $170 million towards the production of electric home furnaces. Are you, this is a joke, right? This is not a joke. Like, this is a joke. This is, this is, this is not covered by the media. I mean, you, you can find it if you Google it, it's out there. So I'm not making this up, but I'm just telling you that of all the wars we have, we now have another one, right? So they're slipping this through because obviously the great, so the threat isn't Iran or Russia or China. The threat is global warming, of course, green energy, all that other stuff. Right. Right. So it's one of those, it's, I just thought, I just thought, you know, and everything else, I thought we'd start off with the, that we're at war because we're at war in so many other places. Why not be at war domestically on the well, economy and that's as well? the thing. Well, that's why I was like, is this a joke? Because I remember months ago, there was all this talk about trying to ban gas, um, uh, gas appliances because yeah, of global warming. This, this is this. But then also, he has, you know, shut down gas pipelines. He's shut down oil leases. You know, he's he's hamstringing American energy production. And then at the same time, now they're going to use a wartime a war powers act, act right. to force manufacturers to make electric. Are they going to then force Americans to switch out their gas stoves? 
Well, don't forget they've already they are already um, outlawing wood pizzas, wood pizza stoves. Remember that one? Remember that <laughs> section? So you know, right? So because of the because of the emissions. Yes. So one would yep. logically assume that they're going to first make these productions. And of course, Secretary of Energy Granholm, you know, another one, oh another insider trading. A uh, brilliant person. Right. Has come out and said, mm -hmm. of course, it'll create all these American jobs, which look, I'm all for American jobs, right? I'm just not for the government picking winners or losers, right? And I'm not for the government no. coming out and basically under what's essentially false pretenses, trying to steer uh, climate change as you know, into the economy and, and affect industry, right? I mean, people well, should be free to choose. Much, do you know how much it would cost a homeowner to convert from, from gas to electric? Aside from just purchasing the appliance, you then have to close off your gas, uh, Luke, because we our old house was gas. We had like a bunch of natural gas stuff. So you have to like close off right. the gas um loops and pipes and all that kind of stuff and then you have to then you have to install an electrical outlet for the oven like right. what i mean this is the same stupidity as trying to make everyone convert to electric and outlawing gas powered cars we're just going to create a bunch more waste unnecessary waste in our our landfills yeah, but that, but that doesn't stupid. matter. The, the, They're the, stupid. That doesn't matter. The air will be cleaner. I mean, look, I'm in really bad shape because I have very little electric in my house. I have oil heat. Oil's bad. Mm. And I have yep. propane. I have gas. Oh, you're very bad. I am. You're super naughty. Right. Exactly. So I just figured you would, <laughs> we would start off on the fact that, you know, and, and we're not even going to get into the fact that, you know, what we predicted, what was it, six months ago that... Ukraine was going to lose this war, which they're now yeah. clearly losing, right? Yep. I mean, the whole thing going on with Hamas is right. Israel is telling the Hamas, you know, the Hamas will surrender because you're going to lose. Why die for a cause you're going to lose for? Yeah. Now the U.S. is saying, well, we don't really want to put money into Ukraine because they're because they're going to lose the war. So why should we put money in there? Right. Which is what we were saying from the very beginning. Right. I believe that was probably, maybe not six or which months is, ago. I'll say. Maybe July. I was saying. Maybe July. Yeah. yeah. Maybe July. So we'll see. So when they're blaming, Ukraine is actually going as far as blaming the U.S. because we won't give them like fighter pilots and go be like ground troops for them. So, you know, it's, well, it's they're, amazing. They're blaming the U.S. To, because we want accountability as to how's the money being spent. Where, where yeah. did it go? How many billions have already been lost? Yeah, I don't know. No blank How many checks. millions no, did they no, say no, that they can't find? No, no Unaccounted checks. for? But, but, but I want to segue <laughs> into something else, right? This, okay. Because this whole, you know, conversation, this whole thing now, Trump is the dictator, right? Um, I wanna, oh, yeah. I, I want to segue, stay with the Defense Production Act. So basically, the, okay. the, the president just used an executive order to do this, mm. right? Right. And the problem I have is, and I don't care which president it is, I don't care which party it is, I don't care which president it is. And you can go back, I mean, I think I think FDR issued like 3,700 and some odd executive orders. It was something Trump, obscene. Trump yeah. was like 322, Obama was 360, Reagan was even, you know, I think even higher. So both sides do it, right? Yeah. 
but but these are done by executive orders. So so they're worried that Trump is going to be a dictator, which I think it's funny because you know he's making fun of him, which is fine, right? But Trump is going to be the dictator. Yet anybody who's a president, because of the dysfunction in Congress and their and they the refusal to do their job, mm-hmm. allows the presidents, all presidents, to use executive orders to bypass the legislative process, which defeats exactly how the checks and balances was set up in the, in the government. And the result exactly is, right. And the result yes. is we have a net we are now now again we have to differentiate national debt versus deficit, right? Deficit is annual, right? Our annual mm. deficit is one point seven trillion dollars, which means that right. our government spends one point seven trillion more than they take in of our money. Right. That's but, right. But the national debt. You know, there's something called the debt clock. I don't know if you can pull this up, Lord Benjamin, yes. if you can pull this up. So the national debt clock, I happen to have it up on my computer too, but I can't show it on the screen. So folks, if you want yeah. to know how much that you're in debt, um, the U.S. national debt, which is the accumulation of all the federal deficits on a yearly basis is $34 trillion. Let's see, yep. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 digits. Go out 14 digits. I believe that would put you in the trillions. All yes. because Congress will not do its job. All because, and what it does is it creates this, maybe it's not a dictatorship, right? I mean, because dictator, by the way, you know the common denominator in this show? Oppression. Dictators oppress the people. Just keep that in mind. Mm, so, Like the national debt oppresses. Right. Which, by the, and, and by the way, folks, if you're listening and you go to, what is it called? USDebtClock.org. I hope, Lord Benjamin, you yep. have it up on the screen for us. The yep. debt per taxpayer is now $260,000 per taxpayer. <laughs> that's, that's how much you, ladies and gentlemen, each of you individually uh, owes the federal government for whatever it is they feel like spending your money on. Right. But but I, I want I want to get back to this, you know, because the Supreme Court is taking up the Chevron decision, and the Chevron decision oh, basically, yes, right. They're going to hear oral arguments in January of 2024, <gasps> and the 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 Chevron decision basically says that the court should defer to the you know administrate state or the um, bureaucrats, if you will, on how these laws are interpreted if Congress passes unclear laws. And the That's problem right. is that either Congress passes no laws or the laws are unclear or they pass, you know, continuing resolutions that are 450 pages that, you know, the congressmen and women vote on before even reading. Yep. Right. So, you know, this has real time ramifications for, for all of us. Because remember, the system was founded on Congress is supposed to originate laws and yep, they're supposed they have to have the purse strings and they're supposed to pass clear laws when you don't pass right. clear laws you allow the executive to you know to of either party to issue executive orders interpreted by the administration administrative state that doesn't that's, change. i was just gonna say and that's that's what to me chevron has contributed to the rise of the administrative state or that fourth branch you know, that unelected fourth branch of government that right. we call the deep state, that we call the administrative state. Um, you think about how many times, you know, that famous quote of of Nancy Pelosi, well, we got to pass it to know what's in it. And what what she really meant was, 
we don't actually know how much this is going to cost because it's not our job as Congress. We're going to just write this law and give it to someone else to go figure out what the consequences right. and the costs are. They just they don't even care. I don't think they pay attention to any of that or consider it when they're passing laws for that matter. Well, there's a reason that you know, Congress has the lowest approval rating of any branch in government, of mm. frankly, of any profession, right? Except your own <laughs> congressperson. But, you know, I mean, you know, it, it, the thing that I'm struck by is also the following, right? Think about it. Okay. So FDR served four terms, actually he served, he was elected for four terms. He served three and a half, he died in office. After right. he was elected for the fourth term, Congress passed term limits for the president. Term limits. Right? Because up until yeah. that, it was precedent where, where um, Washington only served two terms. That was the precedent that was established. FDR, because it was wartime, decided that, you know, the country needs me and I'm so important, therefore I need to serve more. You know, we're in the Great Depression yeah. and all that other stuff. But if Congress right. limited the president to two term limits, why isn't Congress limited? So they can limit, so they, so they limit the other branch, but they don't limit themselves. How, how did, I want to know how they got away with that nonsense. Well, they but, can vote themselves raises. They can do all of this stuff right. and they never hold themselves or each other accountable. It's outrageous. Well, you know, la guillotine, la guillotine. I mean, I figure, you know, if you, <laughs> you know, storm the Bastille works for me. Right. But, um, yeah, there is a, a term limits um, like organization. I'm trying to remember, um, we'll put it in the, in the comment or up on the screen, but there is, or Benjamin, can you look it up? It's like a national term limits, uh, organization that is, um, trying to push, uh, I'm, I'm looking it up right now. That's trying to push for term limits. And um, when I was running for Congress, they hounded me to sign their petition. And yeah, termlimits.com. Um, Logical. Yeah. So if you listen, if our listeners out there, if you believe that Congress should have term limits, go to termlimits.com, sign the petition. They are very active and they do send this stuff to your legislators. So, you know, they may not listen, but it's worth telling them what you think. Agreed. And, and, and when it comes right down to it, uh, we need to not do away with executive orders. By the way, I want to say Madison Monroe and one other president issued exactly one executive order. Right now, obviously, that was a million years ago. Country was much younger. But the whole concept of executive orders. Yeah. Right. Which, you know, are necessary at a certain point. Then they're they're part of what sort of the lubrication of what makes government run. But when one branch isn't doing their job, which would be Congress, regardless of party, is not doing their job, then what it does, it empowers the executive through the administrative state and through what, what's it called? The Chevron decision or the Chevron mm -hmm. deference, right? Chevron decision with force of law. So, so dictator, I, um, you got to admit, it is pretty funny. I promise if I'm a dictator, I'll be dictator on day one only. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Come on, you have to admit. Oh, this is what anybody who listens to Donald Trump as anything other than a comedian is really uh, is doing too much. It, it, it's doing too much. And speaking of doing too much, 
we're doing too much. Benjamin is saying we got to go to break. We got to go to break and make so, some money. So being, yeah. So folks, being the, the bourgeois capitalists that we are, we're going to go to break, and we will see you on the other side. And I promise that Erica will be back, but not sure I will. Stay tuned. Oh. And find out. From conservative commentator and contributor to Breitbart News, The American Spectator, The Jerusalem Post, The New Civil War, Exposing Elites, Fighting Utopian Leftism, and Restoring America, Bruce D. Abramson brings a transformative exploration into how progressivism has poisoned America. Featuring a foreword by President Trump's former strategist, Sebastian Gorka, PhD, The New Civil War will open your eyes to the left's incendiary agenda and how patriotic Americans can fight back. We are living through a national trauma. The United States has jettisoned the rule of law and ceased functioning as a republic. Battle lines have been drawn. Progressives are moving quickly to cement their transformation of the country's beliefs, attitudes, values, social structures, economic models, and government organizations. Patriotic Americans are waking up to recognize that conservatism failed to conserve much of anything. Progressives control academia, media, the civil service, and several of our country's most important industries. The new civil war is not a call for war. It is a recognition that war has been declared on us. Our sacred love of liberty is under attack. Unless we defend it, the America we love may be lost. This book is for every patriotic American eager to defeat the utopian left and restore America. Joel Pollack, conservative journalist. Americans face a bizarre new political landscape. A supposedly moderate president who ran on promises of unity is pursuing a radical left-wing agenda. These challenges call for principled, effective opposition. The new civil war will help start a conversation about how to push back. Harmeet Dillon, civil rights lawyer. As a lawyer who defends the victims of progressivism every day, I have looked into the eyes of the thought police. The new civil war provides the wake-up call American needs and serves as a self-defense manual for patriotic Americans. Get your copy of The New Civil War today. Hello, welcome back to Of The People. I'm Robert Chernin with my lovely co-host. Erica Reddick. Lady Erica. So I tried to leave, folks. I promise you I tried to leave. But <laughs> just when I thought I was out, <laughs> she pulled me back in. So exactly. All right. So following our continued theme of oppression, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the, the theme of the Today Show is, mm -hmm. or anti-oppression or anti-depression, is death by mm. political correctness, right? When I Ooh. sit back, right? When I sit back and look, I mean, come on. You saw the hearings this week on Capitol Hill where um, Stefanik, uh, Congresswoman Stefanik was, was basically, you had the presidents of UPenn, uh, yep. McGill, uh, and then you had um, President Gay of Harvard, Harvard. and yep. uh, I'm trying to remember the president of Cornbluth, of uh, Sally mm. Cornbluth of MIT, who would not categorically condemn anti-Semitism as racism because it all depends on, you know, depends on what the meaning of the word is, is functionally is. speak, right? <laughs> I mean, thank, thank you, yes. Bill Clinton. That's Monica. what it was like. Right. Yes. Right. Exactly. Yep. But, but how did we get here? Right. Because mm. I mean, if you really step and you back and you look at it, so we all obviously know that the president of UPenn, Liz McGill was forced to resign ostensibly because yeah. one of the large donors withdrew a hundred million dollars. <gasps> right. And I mean, 
You want change in academia? Hit them in their pocketbook. There's a yeah, reason. Yeah, where were they when? Oh, nope. Go oh, ahead. I'm listening. There's a reason, however, because the boards at both Harvard and MIT voted to not fire, uh, was it Claudine Gay, and not fire yeah. at, at Harvard, and not fire Sally Cornbluth. Now, let's talk about the MIT one, because I think that's the easy one. <sighs> because So here you have a Jewish woman, right? And everybody knows I'm Jewish. So, you know, I mean, you know, Nish to Goyen. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. For all you Yiddish speakers out there. Um, how it's not even hypocritical. How ironic would it be for MIT to fire a Jewish president who wouldn't come out and can categorically and condemn, condemn anti-Semitism? Because because what, what what's the expression where um, words are words are actions or lack of words are actions or. Oh, yeah, that, that it's. She, it was, some, it was like, if once you, at, once, well, it depends um, on the it was, context. it's okay, right? Freedom of speech is fine as long as it doesn't turn into actions, right? Well, and so except, that was, except I, if, except if you're gay or you're, you're, or you're Black Lives Matter or you're LGBTQ, exactly. right? Then, right. So, or so white. But, yeah. You can, you can condemn white people and tell them how terrible and racist and all kinds of other names that they are. Right. So anyway, go ahead. So so logically, MIT sort of had an out on that, right? I mean, you can't really. I mean, because MIT would have been accused of being anti-Semitic for firing a Jewish, you know, president, <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, and maybe I'm connecting the dots that aren't there, but it's the way it looks like to me, right? But well, then you look at. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. But then you look at President Harvard, who not only is accused of being, you know, refusing to condemn anti-Semitism. She's now accused of plagiarism. <laughs> plagiarism? Looked, oh, I didn't yeah. hear this one. Oh, yeah. They looked at her thesis, and I'm trying to remember <gasps> who who the um, – and, and it was taken from uh, another author. Hang on. I mean, if you – you know, Lord Benjamin, Google it for us real quick. I'm trying to remember because the woman who she plagiarized it from, uh, Carol um, – help me here, Lord Benjamin, because I'm supposed to have the name up here, and I can't remember it. You know, it shows you how distracted I am today. Trying, um, basically, yep, we've basically came out and said that, you know, she plagiarized me. Right. Do we have a name here? Let's see. Okay. So Claudine Gay, the talent, right. let's see, what does it say? Who she, who but, she plagiarized. So the board of Harvard board of trustees voted to keep her. And again, what the common denominator really is none of the large donors at Harvard None of the large donors at MIT, based on the hearing, said, I'm withdrawing money. Now, there were some who, after Harvard and MIT came out and didn't condemn the Hamas attack, that's, but that was almost three, you know, two and a half months ago. Really, the person who was pulling $100 million out of UPenn did it right after those hearings and said, if you can't condemn anti-Semitism or, or condemn words being hate speech, you know, it's okay for the gay community or the trans community, but not for Jews, right? Um, yeah. And I'm trying to remember, it was Carol's. Kathy Manning. Um, wait, no, Democrat on Monday accused of. No, that's a different, that's a different thing. Um, Benjamin, we're talking about plagiarizing um, the Harvard uh, person plagiarizing her thesis. Yeah. Anyway, we'll get back to you on that. But, but I mean, 
Yeah. And then you have the University of Wisconsin, right? Also, you know, very liberal. Um, obviously, it's a state school system. So the mm -hmm. state legislature, which is Republican, this happened yesterday or the day before, like a couple last couple of days, put out an eight and said, we're going to approve your $800 million budget, but we want you to freeze your DEI hiring. We want you to institute certain courses that teach, you know, classic liberal education, meaning let's call it reading, writing, and arithmetic and civics. And, and basically the university system said no. So there's an impasse as to how they're going to get their funding because, you know, they want, you know, they are so entrenched with teaching wow. DEI, right? And, and it's amazing. But, but how did we get here is the question. That's where we started this. It started with death by political correctness, right? Remember back in the Obama days? you couldn't say anything to offend anyone. And then people stopped saying anything because they didn't know where the boundaries were. And then they created right. safe spaces on campus, right? Because yep. of, because of what? Microaggression, because- That's right, because uh, words are violence words and are, silence is violence and- Oh, that, thank you, right. But apparently that, violence is fine. Right. Actual so, violence. So then we went from safe spaces to safe universities where Yep. where political diversity, I remember universities used to be about teaching people how to think and different thoughts. Mm. And it was the cauldron of ideas, but now it's not how to think it's what to think and what you shouldn't think it's again, but we've created this political correctness where and, and academia now has control over curriculum, right? see how they're fighting back when we're trying to change curriculum or to at least yep. sort of have the pendulum swing the other way. So you have this yep. death by political correctness because one side, because I was in a conversation the other day with someone who was in California, moved to Florida. And he said, you know, it's so liberating to be in Florida because he goes, look, I'm not always around people who are conservative, but I don't have to measure what I say and start gauging the crowd as to whether or not exactly. I'm going to be ostracized or being canceled afraid. or being canceled. Right. Mm -hmm. So they have stifled free speech in the name of diversity in the name of political correctness, in the name of DEI, right? So, and again, what we say, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion is really division, elitism, and intolerance, right? <laughs> what, what am I missing? No, I mean, that that is it. And ultimately, what's, what's so funny, and, and I don't mean, it's not funny, is that this idea or this push to try to be more diverse supposedly actually just makes us more segregated because people are now so afraid to say anything like you said i don't know what the boundaries are i don't know what's going to get me in trouble it depending on where i am i don't know who i'm going to offend or what kind of trouble i'm going to get in so you know what i'm going to do i'm going to revert back I'm going to, I'm not going to be out there. I'm not going to go out and make friends or relationships or, or be in community with people who are different than me because I'm too afraid to actually go engage with them because I don't know where the guardrails are. And ultimately I, I really, you know, we have seen this, this DEI nonsense actually create more division, more racial right. tension in this country. It's right. made things worse, not better. So I just, I've always felt like focusing on diversity is it actually is just making things worse instead of just 
go be with people, go ask questions, be curious, um, and be, and be generous and graceful on top of that. You know, if somebody says to me, Hey, Erica, your nose is long and crooked. What nationality are you? I'm not going to be, well, I mean, it depends on how rude they are, but like <laughs> I've been, I've been asked it. People ask me all the time what my nationality is because I got a big old nose. People think I'm Jewish. People think I'm all kinds of you know, different nationalities. You're not. I'm sure. No. I know it's I'm shocking. So I'm just I'm so, French. I'm so disappointed. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> all I am is French, Robert. I'm sorry. It's all I got. That about on that, um, but, eh? <laughs> but we can't like. Why would I get mad at someone being curious about me and my family and my heritage? Now, if somebody's being a jerk and they're being rude, that's one thing. But no, I you know this diversity is, is, is not our strength well, in look, the look, Obama sense of the expression. Look, diversity. The problem is it's diversity for diversity's sake, right? It, mm. It's not. It's not. It's not empowering. It's dividing. It it, it divides yeah. people through a racial lens, because mm -hmm. you know. And again, it's the antithesis of Martin Luther King, which is you, you know you're supposed to go to a colorblind society where you're judged on what the content of your character not the color of your skin, right? So right. to put people in different boxes, but look, you know my theory in all of this, right? The theory is if you divide a country into little boxes, black from white, men from women, rich from mm. poor, and you divide people, then you can control people because they're too yep. busy fighting each other, right? And that's, yep. and that's Isolate part of the problem. Isolate and dominate. But, yep. but, but Isolate I, and dominate. Right, but I will tell you, I wanna come back to these hearings. I mean, mm. if you cannot call out the atrocities of Hamas, Right. Mm. I mean, they were they were raping women. They were burning babies alive. Right. I mean, hearkening back to the ovens in, you know, uh, in the concentration camps, they were yep. de de decapitating people. They were, you know, raping women. Right. And then you have all this sort of rampant now anti-Semitism. If that if you cannot call that out as evil, then we have lost yeah. our moral compass. And we have That's lost right. our lost our humanity. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter. So for so for these college presidents to have have such moral equivalence and such equivocating when yeah. asked a very basic question yeah. really lays bare the death by political correctness that we have seeded academia to sort of the, this progressive left that is not That's right. teaching p children how to think, but teaching them what to think and, and, and what's acceptable, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it still comes mm -hmm. back down to, so Justice Potter Stewart famously said as Supreme Court Justice, when, when, when asked about pornography, said, mm. you know, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Yeah. Right? So and it's the same thing with, e with evil. If, if I can't define it. But this so far crosses the line. And for these college presidents not to call it out, and that's why there's the backlash that there is, right? Yeah. But they've used- Well, but and that's Robert, like this is, this is when I was listening to them, the, the, from the river to the sea, okay, only means one thing. It right. only means one thing. And to try to pretend like it doesn't to try to say oh no no it's just an expression or or to then try to make excuses as if these students are ignorant of what it no they're not they are not ignorant of what it means you can and if they are 
then they should not, then they should definitely be thrown out of these Ivy League colleges because they are too stupid, clearly, to earn an education from one of them. Well, well no, the donor, look, this is really simple. There's not going to be change on college campuses until the donor class or the alumni uh, mm. start withdrawing money. If you want, right. if you, you want to make change, withhold the money. You just That's saw right. it happen, you append. But I want to sort of end this segment because I know we're coming up, up to the close reiterating what we started with which is there is a line that you can trace from the safe spaces that started in the you know 2008 right on college campuses occupy wall street divert you know you know uh you know all those sort of divestiture movements bds for israel you know mm -hmm. you know you know boycott you know divest you know that kind of thing all these social so justice movements to, because of the microaggressions and then safe spaces and then academia and and there's a direct line to what you just saw play out in those congressional mm -hmm. hearings. And it really starts with making people afraid to say what they think and believe. And look, you know, there's going to be vocal disagreements in the public square. That's okay. Disagreement. People are supposed to disagree. That's what you're supposed to discuss. That's what you're supposed to debate, right? We're now at the point, you know, there are actually in Chicago, they're starting segregated classrooms again, where they're oh, only going to have black God. students in classrooms. Bro. And then you and then then you have Obama came out. What was that movie he just oh. came out with with Netflix? Hang on. I got to I got to pull this one. So Obama's Obama's movie on Netflix is Leave the World Behind. So and did you see the reviews? No. So there, so there's a scene, and again, it's sort of an uh, apocalyptic. You know what happens when the world breaks down, and and there's a scene, and you know, and this is the Obama movie where they basically said um, there's a black couple lying in bed, and one said, one guy, the guy says to the woman, "I'm asking you to remember that if the world falls apart, trust should not be doled out easily to anyone, especially white people." Thank you on Netflix. Wow. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, and it, cancel your Netflix subscriptions. And, and and this is the former president, right? So, you know, it, it, <sighs> it, it's, we have enough division in this country. That's know? right. I mean, you, you, you want to heal the divide? We need to have more conversation, not less conversation. There need Amen. to be more ideas out there and people need to, to speak up. And I know we're now getting the high sign. I assume we're getting the high sign from Lord Benjamin. Yes, we I know are. So folks, we are verging on the holiday season if we're not in the holiday. I guess we're technically in it because it's between Thanksgiving yeah. and New Year's. So the next section I want you to stay tuned for. And that section really is on American exceptionalism and what it means to be American and what it is we're all fighting to restore. Because you cannot conserve, my conservative friends mm. out there, you cannot conserve something you've already lost. You can restore That's it. That's right. This is about the American restoration of American exceptionalism. Stay tuned for mm. the third segment. Eric and I will be right back. Socialism. The goal of socialism is communism. The world is quite familiar with socialism and the horrors socialism has brought with it. It wasn't that long ago. Actually, it's still with us. Socialism creeps into government slowly until it's too late. Socialism, the big lie. Yes, it could happen anywhere. This educational video was brought to you by the American Center for Education and Knowledge. 
and paid for by people like you who care about the future of our democracy. Please help us continue our work educating the American public and consider supporting ASIC by making a tax-deductible donation at ASICfund.org. Hello, and welcome back to Of the People. I'm Robert Chernin. Thank you so much for staying with us. In this section, I want to go back to basics. What's it all about? Why are we doing this? What's important? And I want to talk about a basic concept, at least in my life and hopefully in yours, and that's American exceptionalism. You know, you hear the words, America is exceptional, America exceptionalism, but what does that really mean? For starters, this show is called Of the People, and really it should be called We the People, because that's really where American exceptionalism starts. In the words of Ronald Reagan, America equals freedom, and if it doesn't equal freedom, it's not America. And if I've learned anything in my years on this earth, it's that the freedom we have in America, or at least the freedom we had in America, is fragile. It's fragile, it's special, it's rare. And again, in the words of Ronald Reagan, who was, no disrespect to President Trump, certainly the greatest president in my lifetime, it's only one generation away from being snuffed out. If you forget your past, you're condemned to repeat it. More importantly, if we forget to teach our children the past and we teach our children about America and teach our children about the values upon which this country was founded, then of course freedom is going to wane. And if freedom wanes, so is America, the last beacon of light, right? The last hope for freedom in the world. So going back to American exceptionalism, American exceptionalism is on two concepts. One is that Government derives its power from the governed. And what does that mean? It means the government is we're supposed to tell them what to do, not the other way around. It's pretty simple. The second is that we are endowed by our creator. That's God, ladies and gentlemen. That's our creator. You can call God Yahweh. You can call God uh, whatever you want to call him. But there's still the one God. And we all partake of that. And our creator endowed us with inalienable rights. That means rights that no one can take away. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are all freedoms. And again, remember, what makes America exceptional is that power flows from the bottom up. We're the ones who tell government what to do. And it's a pretty easy equation, right? Because the more government regulation there is, the less free that we are. And again, You'll forgive me because Reagan was that important in my lifetime. Reagan said in his final speech in office, which if you haven't seen it, you should, said, as government expands, liberty contracts. It's pretty simple, isn't it? So American exceptionalism is the fact that what makes America exceptional is it was a free country. The power flows from the people to the government. The gov We're supposed to tell the government what to do. Doesn't seem that way these days, but that's the way it's supposed to work. And the fact that we are banded together as a country, not by common ethnicity, not by caste, not by clan, but by a common set of ideals. America was indeed founded with a religion. It was a civic religion. It was declared, no pun intended, in the Declaration of Independence. And those tenets, 
Those are the things that make America exceptional. Again, it's about freedom. America equals freedom. Freedom of what? Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to congregate. I mean, there's a reason at the height of COVID. I mean, think about what we've just gone through for the last three years with COVID. What we went through was, number one, a lot of misinformation, of course, because COVID was going to be like Stephen King's The Stand and the plague that killed the world. So everyone got scared and we got controlled by our fears. So we were told that we couldn't congregate in our churches or temples or in our uh, dining halls or taverns, right? We had to stay home. We had to wear the symbol of obedience, which were clearly the masks because science has shown that they really weren't effective at anything other than teaching us to be obedient and obey, right? That's what we were taught to do. Stay in your home. Don't congregate. Don't exercise your freedoms or you'll be punished, right? And you're going to rely on the government for all your information vis-a-vis the internet. But what they didn't tell you was that they were then going to control the internet, control what you saw or what you didn't see or what you hear or what you didn't hear. That is the antithesis of freedom. Therefore, it's the antithesis of American exceptionalism. And again, remember that relationship. The bigger the government is, the less free that you are. And man is not free unless government is limited. That's why this is about smaller government. We talk about the swamp. We talk about the deep state, which by the way, the deep state, ladies and gentlemen, is really nothing more than the administrative state. What's the administrative state? The, the, the thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of bureaucrats and unelected officials who, regardless of who the president is, regardless of who controls Congress, they're still the ones that are there that are implementing the laws. They are unaccountable to you, to me, to we the people or of the people. They're not elected. They stay there. They have such contempt for you and I because they're not accountable. And because they're also unionized, they can't be fired. Hell, they're faceless. They're nameless. We're now faced with a government that is weaponizing the government. They're weaponizing the, the FBI. They're weaponizing the Department of Homeland Security. They're, they're weaponizing the uh, Internal Revenue Service. All of these things to protect their base, which is their power. This is about power and this is about money. That's what's going on here. They're scared of us. And the reason they're scared of us, I mean, think about it. When Obama came into office, right? I used to say, you used to call it demagogue, demonize, and divide. And that's what he did. He, Lord knows he was a demagogue. He demonized those who disagreed with him. And then he divided us, rich from poor, men from women, black from white. He, he didn't see what joined us all together. He didn't see the common links, the common bonds. He certainly didn't see American exceptionalism. Whether intentional or not, and I would argue it was intentional, he divided us. He divided us into little pockets. And then he pit us against each other. And of course, when you're in little pockets and you're divided into these little parts, it's much easier for a small cadre or a small group to rule. That's what's going on. They are protecting their prerogatives. They're protecting their power and they're protecting their base of power. 
If you go back to when the Constitution was written, you go back to the Federalist Papers, more importantly, go back to the Anti-Federalist Papers. Ben Franklin put forth a suggestion that government officials, if they were truly citizen politicians, should not be paid. Can you imagine that? Not be paid. Because the nexus of power and money in a position of government to be paid is why we have the problem today. That, of course, and there are no term limits. So the government, the politicians, the bureaucrats get to stay there year after year after year. And what makes matters worse is they're not subject to the same laws that you and I are. You do realize, ladies and gentlemen, that Congress doesn't have the same medical plan that you and I have. Plus, they get pensions for life. Now, there are many really good and decent congressmen, men and women, senators, men and women, but there are a lot of people who have a political agenda to make America into something that it's not. You know, it used to be when I was growing up, the real difference between the Democrats and the Republicans was not on the goals. It was just how to achieve the goals. And as important, politics did stop at the water's edge, but no more of that on either side, unfortunately. There are good Republicans and less or so, but there are good Democrats. But we really have a uniparty system that is more hell-bent on maintaining their base of power at the expense of our freedoms at increasing the size of government to protect their base. That's what this is. It is the antithesis of American exceptionalism. And look, at the end of the day, the simple definition is American exceptionalism is about individual freedoms and personal liberties combined with personal responsibility. That doesn't exist anywhere in the world, anywhere but here. It's what makes us different from everyone else. The power flows from the bottom up. At least it's supposed to. But we also have a responsibility that we have forgotten. We have given our children to the schools to teach. It's up to us to teach our children, aided by the schools. But we've taken our eye off the ball there. So, of course, they're going to continue to push agendas. And that's why they don't want to be accountable to us. Because now the agenda that they're teaching is the antithesis of patriotism. It's the antithesis of American exceptionalism. It's the antith And they don't want us to be informed. It's the antithesis of all that we worked to build as a country in 200 years. We're allowing them to topple our statues. We're allowing them to rewrite history. Hell, we're allowing them to instill a new history in this country. America is not a perfect place. This is not about perfection. This is about our history. And you don't get to rewrite history. You're supposed to learn from history. And if you don't like history, great. That's good. Then you won't repeat the mistakes. But to rewrite it, and more importantly, to redefine it, to mean it's polar opposite, this definitional politics, now, now being racist is not being racist because there's systemic racism. Therefore, people who are racist aren't racist anymore. They're truth seekers. We go back to the ultimate relativism, right? One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. That is absolute, total, unadulterated crap. There is right and wrong in the world. There is good and evil in the world. It's important that we stand up and teach our children our history, all the good, all the bad, but not that America was born through original sin, in this case, slavery. 
Sure, slavery was a part of all of this, but it wasn't what defined us solely. And to now allow them to teach our children that everything is seen through the colored lens of race or creed or wealth, we are allowing them to define who and what we are by rewriting history. And it's up to us to teach our children our history. If we forget what we did, we'll forget who we are. Actually, we have forgotten what we did because we're letting other people rewrite it. So, of course, we forget who we are. So, I want to ask you all, listeners, a question. What does it mean to you to be an American? What does it mean? What freedom, what freedoms, what things that, that if they take them away will cause you to finally fight back, will finally to stand up and be counted, to say, I'm not going to take it anymore, right? What was the movie, Broadcast News? They put their head out the window and say, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Where's the outrage, America? Why are you letting them rewrite our history? It's up to us to make sure that our children and the future generations understand our history, understand government, how it's supposed to work, separation of powers, not only within, uh, between branches, but within branches. And if you'll let me digress for a second. So most people think that America is really founded in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence. And there's no question that the Declaration was our defining document. And it laid out the civic religion that was America and American exceptionalism. America equals individual liberties and freedom, and the power is supposed to flow from the people to the government, and the people are supposed to tell the government what to do. But we didn't have the Constitution at that point. We had something called the Articles of Confederation, which basically was a loose confederation of states, and there was a very there was not a strong central government. And the states were preeminent. The federal government couldn't tax, they couldn't regulate interstate commerce, and they couldn't even put together an army, really. It, that's why there were all these state militias. At the time, we thought there was this new man, right, who walked the earth, called an American, who if all you did was remove the yoke of the British, this new man, this new American, this new race of Americans would do what was in the best interest of mankind. Eleven years later, they realized that didn't work really well. Their original assumption was wrong. America was not was so when the constitutional congress met in 1787 they were originally their mandate was to rewrite the articles of confederation but they didn't do that instead what they did was to basically acknowledge that our initial assumption was wrong and so they crafted a constitution that was driven by compromise between branches within branches right and then they instituted the Bill of Rights because they wanted to make sure that these rights were enumerated for individual liberties, right? Obviously, as embodied by the First Amendment. And the First Amendment is first for a very good reason, because it's most important. Freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly. And we won't talk about the press abdicating their sacred responsibility, but I will tell you that Edward R. Murrow May he rest in peace is rolling over in his grave. That's for damn sure. So when the, Congress, um, when the Constitutional Congress left, as the story goes, there was a woman who saw Benjamin Franklin and said to Benjamin Franklin, Mr. Franklin, what have you given us? His response was, Republic, madam. 
if you can keep it. If we can keep it is very much in question right now. Because before we are a democracy, and we're not really a democracy, right? We're a constitutional republic. Before we are a constitutional republic, we're a nation of laws. And if you want to revolutionize or, or rewrite or transform society, thank you, President Obama, we are five days away from transforming America, how right he was. If you want to transform America, you got to get rid of the laws. And if you want to get rid of the laws or rewrite the laws or eradicate the laws, you do two things. Number one, you get rid of the people that enforce the law, i.e. law enforcement, as in defund the police. Secondarily, you rewrite history. You redefine things. You redefine racism to not mean judging someone based on the color of their skin you redefine racism that the entire country is racist. And then you come up with these little nonsense things like microaggression where it doesn't matter what you say because I know what you're really thinking because I'm inside your head and that's a microaggression and I'm offended. And it used to be, at least when I was growing up, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, right? What did that really mean? It, mean, it meant what I thought about myself was more important than what you thought about me. And if you called me names, okay, shame on you. You shouldn't have done that, but it doesn't really affect what I think about me or what I feel or what I know to be right. We've inverted that now through microaggressions and safe spaces and tenure and all those other things. And, and we have silenced debate through political correctness because God forbid that we offend anybody, right? So we get rid of man's laws by getting rid of law enforcement. We rewrite history. We, we topple statues like the Taliban have done. And then after we're done with getting rid of man's laws, then we go after God's laws and we get rid of God's laws. And then we say there aren't two genders. There are 400 or 200 or we're intersectional or we're bisectional or we're bisexual. Whatever it is we are, it's more defined by what we're not. There aren't two genders. Well, ladies and gentlemen, two plus two now equals five. Of course, that doesn't really matter because we've done away with college testing anyway because it's no longer a meritocracy. It's not about wanting the best person, man or woman, for the job. It's about what's the color of their skin? Who are we going to appease or offend if we make this decision? So instead of raising the bar, we've lowered the bar and, or we've gotten rid of the bar altogether. But in doing so, we have given government power over us. So now that the power doesn't flow from the people to the government, it flows from the government to the people and they tell us what to do and not to do. It is the antithesis of individual liberties. It is the antithesis of American exceptionalism. That's what we're fighting for. And until the average American gets fed up and is willing to stand up, be counted, connect the red dots and fight back, it is going to be an uphill battle to restore America. Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about an American restoration. We're conserving nothing. How can you conserve that which you've already lost? It's not possible. So when someone asks you what American exceptionalism is, it's simple. It's individual freedoms and personal responsibility. And in the words of Ronald Reagan, if we forget what we did, we forget who we are. And as government expands, liberty contracts. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what we're fighting for, to restore individual liberties, to restore American exceptionalism. And it starts by teaching who we are, what we stood for, what we fought for, and frankly, what we've died for. 
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for indulging me. This is Robert Chernin of The People. Thanks for being here.